0: Good morning, church, once again, it's good to be with you again, studying the word of God, praying together, seems like the congregation departed when the kids went out, (laughs) seems like half of us um, remain here. So we need to be praying for our kids as well, that they would have great time studying the word of God and also uh, be instructed in that I want you to invite you to bow your hearts with me. We will pray to our Lord as we begin this study. Uh, Father, we thank you once again, our hearts overflow with gratitude for Jesus Christ. And as we open up the word of Christ and hear Christ speak directly to our hearts, we ask you that you would transform us and remind us, remind us apart from Christ, Um, We are unworthy. Uh, We, Lord, deserve only your wrath. Uh, But in Christ, there's forgiveness. In Christ, there's reconciliation. In Christ, there's righteousness. And as we consider what it means to be in Christ for us now, who are part of the new covenant, for us who have tasted the goodness of God and what it means for our daily walk before you i pray that you would help us to to see that uh, those who belong in your kingdom the citizens of of your kingdom we we behave differently the standard is different the motivation is different we we are car- called to speak the truth we are called to go beyond the original call we are called to go and, and to sacrifice and to serve others sacrificially. This is, this is who we are. This is, this is who we need to be known as. And I pray that you would just remind us these, these truths that we, we know. Help us, Father, I pray, to look to Jesus Christ. To look to his example that he left for us. And be convinced that this is the way we ought to live. I pray, bless our time here in your word. Amen. Well, open your Bibles once again to Matthew chapter five, Matthew chapter five. Again, we find ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus is preaching. Just want to highlight this one aspect again and again, that we're not just hearing the words of Christ. This is the word of Christ. This is Christ himself is proclaiming this truth. And week after week, we have been looking at section after sections. And, and sometimes I think we, we can get lost in all the details. We can get lost in just looking at one section and then go on to the next. So I think it's important for us to, to remind ourselves what Jesus' main point, what his thesis is, is in this sermon. And I want you to look at verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. Where Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He says, I came to fulfill the law of God. Everything that God had commanded. All the demands, Jesus says, find their fulfillment in him. Not in observance of the law, but in fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And as a result, those who are in Christ, those who are now part of his kingdom, we are privileged, brothers and sisters, we are privileged to live by another code, not another set of laws, but we are to live in Christ with a transformed heart. We have these new affections for Jesus Christ, new desires, new motives. We have complete transformation because of what Jesus had done for us. And so as he, he unpacks his thesis to reveal our need for Jesus Christ, this is really the the point of the sermon. After reading the sermon in verse, in chapter seven, we need to understand one thing. We need someone else to go to bat on behalf of our, us before God in order to qualify us for heaven. And so as he, he reveals our need one by one, he, he begins to correct, beginning with verse 21, misconceptions of the people who came before him and who interpreted the law of God, the Old Testament, because years and years and years and years have gone by and people have begun to, to adopt little rules, little misunderstandings, right, because of, because of our sinful tendencies and we begin to begin to warp god's word to our own purposes and this is what jesus is exposing here you understand my word to be to mean one thing but i tell you there's something greater there's something deeper i have a greater concern here to expose and he begins to to turn the the order of the world as they knew on its head so that people would realize they have nothing to offer to god and that's why he begins this the sermon with blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are gentle. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness. When he pronounced these words, I will remind you that they were anti-norm. It was completely radical order. And so he insists that God's glory is paramount and that he, not us, is the goal Of obedience and so in verse 21 Jesus first begins and says you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and he attacks their understanding of murder he says you have heard but I tell you that murder is a matter of heart not a matter of physical act that before the Lord our anger qualifies us to be liable in God's court and worthy of damnation. But not only that, he goes on and in verses 27 through 32, he exposes our lust. And he says, adultery is not the first crime. Lust is. And because of our lust, we deserve hell. We deserve hell. Lust runs so deep and is so damaging that it destroys relationships, including our, our marriages because it is so Selfish, And we talked about that last week. Today, Jesus turns to another very twisted and warped area of interpretation regarding vows, regarding promises, regarding retaliation in verses 33 through 42. He's addressing our speech. He's addressing our actions. And just like the the previous two, this one here cuts very deep. Right down to our hearts, and, and I pray that as we study this this section, that that many of us here we would not be too quick just just to tune out what Jesus says because we read things like vows, and we're like we, that that's just not so 2021. We don't do that nowadays. Why do we even pay attention, brothers and sisters, teenagers, kids? Pay attention and and understand that that. There is a greater, there is a much deeper truth here that Jesus is addressing. And I want to read now with verse, beginning with verse 33, Matthew 5, 33. we'll read through 42 and we'll look at this. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oaths at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth for it is the footstool of his feet or by jerusalem for it is the city of the great king nor shall you make an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black but let your statement be yes yes or no no anything beyond this is of evil you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but i say to you do not resist an evil person but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. I want us to see one central theme in these verses. And that is this as kingdom citizens, the way we make much of Jesus Christ is we do it by speaking truthfully and serving sacrificially. Jesus is addressing something very important here. He is saying, you have heard something, but I tell you that if you were going to follow me and my understanding and my protocol for you, then you are going to speak truthfully and you're going to serve sacrificially. I want us to look at one of these individually, beginning with verse 33. Number one, as kingdom citizens, speak truthfully to one another. As kingdom citizens, speak truthfully to one another. You know, today we live in the world of Alternative facts. Alternative facts. The idea that your word is your bond is a foreign concept nowadays. Today, in fact, truth is a rare commodity. Society at large doesn't care whether something is true or not. It's only concerned with ways we can advance our own agendas And if in the process, we feel like we need to hold something back, maybe twist the message a little bit, maybe not say everything we ought to say, half speak, or, or, or maybe in some cases we just need to flat out lie. That's okay. As long as we're just advancing our business, as long as we're doing what I think is important to do. This reality, however, is not, is not true. It it was well alive in Jesus's day, but, but here's the issue. I mean, you expect sinners to sin, right? I mean, we would expect the world to act like the world. That is, that's where we came from. We know what that is like. However, the problem is, it's not that the, the world is the problem. As we've seen over and over again in Matthew chapter five, the problem that Jesus exposes is with the religious leaders. It's with the pious, it's with the so-called righteous. Those who quote unquote, go to church and do church. These spiritual guides were, were not only guilty themselves when it came to evading the requirements of God's law, but they had also basically assisted the general population in hedging the truth. So after three rounds of exposure, focusing on the issues of the heart, now Jesus continues in the same vein, and this time focusing on the, their use of promises, oaths, or vows here. And I want you to see two things. Number one, that Jesus exposes the abuse of their vows, the abuse of their vows. Again, verse 31, 33 rather, again, Jesus is pointing to another distinction he's about to make between the teaching and the interpretation of the law, Versus his interpretation of the law. Let's remember again that Jesus is not correcting here. The old Testament, the meaning of the old Testament. It is the false interpretation that the religious folks have put on the word on the law that Jesus is here exposing. Now look at verse 34, but I say to you, make no oath at all. Make no oath at all. If we just take this, this statement here at face value, make no oath at all, we will run into all kinds of problems here because the Old Testament commands and calls the believers to swear and take oaths. For instance, Leviticus chapter 19 verse 12 says, you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name Of your God, I am the Lord. So when you swear, don't swear falsely. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, You shall fear God, fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him, and you shall swear by his name. So the Old Testament calls believers, calls the people of God to do this. Not only that in the New Testament... We find apostles swearing. We find apostles taking oaths. Paul swore on multiple occasions. In fact, in first Thessalonians 527, look what he says here. I adjure you. In other words, I put you under oath. I want you to swear by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. So that's a heavy language. He is calling God as a witness that the letter he just wrote and sent it to them, that it will be read to all. In addition to this, God himself, if you've read the scripture, right, swore by his name all over the Bible. One particular verse that stands prominent is Hebrews 6, 17 and 18. Look what it says here. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So desiring to change, to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope said before us. God himself swore to keep his word. Not because he's a liar. Because it says here, it is impossible for God to lie. But in order to assure us, sinners, and so that we would believe in the word of God. Now, swearing, usually nowadays, just as an aside here, when someone talks about swearing or cursing, we're, we're, we, we usually refer to Saying something bad, saying something negative, like stop cursing or stop swearing, right? And this idea is naturally rooted in this idea here in verses 33 and 31. It is related. Cursing is ultimately rooted in the idea of taking vows, of taking oaths. It comes from the accurate understanding of of, of swearing a curse upon yourself if you fail to follow through on what you have promised. So when you swear to God, you, you bind yourself to God's judgment if you do not fulfill it. We hear that all the time. I swear to God that I didn't do this. Or I swear to God that I will do this. And what we do by saying that is we bring God into the equation, into our human undertaking. And we're saying that I want God to be the witness here that whatever I tell you, whatever this transaction that that we're going to make right now, that if I fail to follow through on it, God is the witness and he will judge me. What Jesus means here is not the modern use of swearing and using bad words, however, but using our language to secure someone's trust on an authority that is greater than us. We bring God and we're saying, listen, I mean what I mean. And I even appeal to God as my witness. And in exposing this pharisaical system, Jesus addresses their use or rather abuse of oaths. You see, they have developed over many, many years this elaborate system, a system of loopholes, a, loop, a system of, of shortcuts. Their system was marked by two things. It was, it was marked by deception. Check this out. It, it, it was their understanding and belief that if, if you called upon the name of God in an oath, then that oath must be carried out. But if you can refrain from using God's name And swear, for instance, by Jerusalem or swear by um, the temple, then oaths that were based on anything other than literally name of God, they were okay. I'm okay with breaking that, that, that law. Look what it says in verse 33. You shall not take or make false vows, you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. And this last phrase here to the Lord was key. This was the point. This was the, the centerpiece to the Lord. If the Lord is involved, then I'm done. If I fail to obey it, uh, if I disobey it. But if I can swear to something that's not really tied to the Lord, if I, if I don't quote his name, then I am okay. I can lie to you directly and get away with it and not fear God's punishment because the Lord is not involved. As long as we're not involve, invoking God's name, then, then you're okay. So you swear by anything else. You know, it's like the, the old playground joke, right? We, we, when we were kids... We would, um, you know, talk about certain things, have a conversation going. We would make promises to one another, and, and um, you know, we would follow through. So, but, but you told me this. You told me you are going to do this. You told me you were going to do this for me. And then we were like, ah, but you see, when I told you this, I had my fingers crossed. So therefore, you didn't see it, but I had him, had him crossed. So I really didn't mean what I, what I told you. My words contradicted the intent because I had my fingers crossed. This is exactly the same thing. You think you can justify lying because you had your fingers crossed? You think you don't lie just because you swore by something other than directly relating and bringing God's name here? This is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. They were playing fast and, and loose with the truth to them, to this religious sect, religious group. Truth only mattered in some contexts, not all. One commentator says some first century rabbis emphasized only the importance of speaking truth to God and downplayed the importance of absolute honesty in all communications they thought that they had a special obligation to keep promises made to God specifically, but could break promises made to others when it was convenient. So in that system, if you wanted to deceive someone, you, you yet kind of still sound pious and, and holy and believable, you, you'd swear by something or, or someone other than God and, and, and feel absolutely okay with breaking that promise. Church Lying was culturally acceptable. And that rings a bell because nowadays we live in a culture where lying is, is culturally acceptable. Corporations, large companies constantly lie to us. In fact, some companies, like there was a published article about Apple recently. They flat out said that it was more profitable for them to lie on the front end and then confess their lie and follow through on it because they would make more money that way. It's okay. We have all kinds of company slogans that are lies. And when someone picks up on it and sues them, they have to pay large sums of money. Why? Because I'm only doing this for profit. I don't care about the truth. Truth is expandable. I can lie just to advance my agenda. But their system, it not only masked deception and marked great irreverence. These rabbis thought of God initially as someone holy. They wouldn't even even call God by his name Yahweh. And so they would then make up all kinds of words in order to replace the name Yahweh lest there be you know, irrelevant, they, they would, they would approach God. And instead of God saying heaven. So heaven became a substitute for the name of, of God. And their initial motive was reverence. God was too high, too holy to even be called by that name. But naturally they drifted to the point where by the time of Jesus Christ, people actually believed that when you swore by anything other than the actual name of God, it was perfectly acceptable to lie. Notice in verses 34 through 36, Jesus calls them out on their irreverence. They pretended to be pious, but it was only a pretense. Pretending to be pious, but it was only a pretense. You pretend to be someone, to be holy, Jesus says, but in reality, you're a liar. Your system is built on a lie. You say it's okay to swear by heaven, but I tell you that it's a lot closer to God than you think. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, he says. Psalm 123 verse 1 says, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. So if you appeal to heavens, you need to understand that heavens is, is God's throne. This is where, this is where he resides, So it doesn't matter if you do not simply invoke his name. He is there. But not only that, look at his, he continues on and he say, nor by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet. You can't swear by earth. Why? Because Isaiah 66 verse one says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Earth is my footstool. I am there just as much as I am there. So it doesn't matter that you swear to heaven. God is here. Doesn't matter if you use that as a substitute. Not only that, look what he says here, nor by Jerusalem. I mean, their system was so corrupt that it it came down to um, prepositions. Look, look, look what he says here in, in the original here. He uses a, a, a different one. It says, nor towards or by, he says by Jerusalem. So in, in their teaching, in their interpretation of the law, they basically said, you know what? If you swear by Jerusalem, then it's okay to lie. You can get away with it. But if you swear towards Jerusalem, you're done. You better fulfill your vow because You're calling God into the equation. Isn't that ridiculous? So they took what, what Daniel did, right? He was praying towards Jerusalem, opened up his windows. And, and he says, that's holy. The, the towards a certain place that's holy, but by don't worry about that. And Jesus said, this is ridiculous. What's up with Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem is the city of the King. Who is this King? He says, this is my city. Jesus says, Don't swear by, don't swear towards, because this is the city of the king. Psalm 48 verse two says, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in that far north, the city of the great king. And if we read on in Matthew 25 verse 34, it says, then the king will say to those who are on his right and to those who are on his left, Don't swear by the city because this is my city. But not only that, he says, he continues on and he says, nor shall you make a oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black. White or black, your head, your life. Your head is important, right? You're basically saying that, I am willing to lay down my life if I don't fulfill this promise. They would swear by their life. I mean, some of you may have used this. Some of you may have heard it cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. It's exactly the same thing we're talking about here. What does that mean? That means I am willing to put my life on the line for this promise. That's what I'm doing. Because he says, don't swear on your life because you can't make your hair white or black. And some of you guys sitting here, gals especially, and you're kind of wondering what that means because you're saying, yes, we can. We go to Target or we can go to a salon and we can dye our hair black, purple, green, white, whatever it is that we want to do, we can do it. So what does he mean here? It's interesting to to notice when you read church history that when Jesus spoke of this first century they already were dyeing their hair it's not a 21st century invention we know this because the early church fathers they wrote about it saying that it's not what Jesus meant here because even back then some legalistic churches they would require their members not to use hair dye so If you dye your hair white, you are out. Now, that's not what he means here. What Jesus is addressing is creation power. The DNA that causes you to have brown or black or or blonde hair, you can't control that. Who can? Jesus alone does. Don't swear by your life because you don't own it. Right? Right? You didn't give yourself life. You can't take it away. Only I can, God says. Only I can, Jesus says. Listen to this. All of these four examples, they are directly connected to God. No matter what you swear by or where you swear, you're always in the presence of God. Remember, everything church is being witnessed by God, no matter where or where you're at. So what you say is important. So here, now, secondly, Jesus calls his followers to a greater standard of righteousness. And I want you to notice this that Jesus is not replacing an Old Testament law with another law of his own. And if we interpret it this way, then we miss the point. He wants us to, to understand his point. These verses are not merely about vows. They're not merely about how we ought to take oaths, but whether or not our speech is marked by truth. Whether or not we should be men and women who are known for our integrity, he says here, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond this is of evil. Let what you say, another translation said, be simply yes or no. James picks up on that, have brother of Jesus. In, in James five twelve, he says, but above all, brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, Or with any other oath. But your yes is to be yes and your no, no. So that you may not fall under judgment. What is Jesus saying? What is James teaching? Are you a man of integrity? The point is, you should always be a man and a woman of your word. No finger crossing behind your back. Those of us, Christians, those who belong to Jesus, those who claim to know the truth, we must speak the truth. And we should not put a deposit on our trustworthiness. When you tell a story or you relate some kind of information or, or you answer a question, do people know that you really mean what you say? Have you given them a reason to trust you or not to trust you? You know, sometimes we preface our, our statements to be honest. Da 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 da. We've said three paragraphs, and then we're like, well, quite frankly. And then we complete that sentence. <laughs> and you begin to wonder, hmm, what about the, the top two paragraphs? Were they a lie? Now that you're finally speaking truth, quite frankly, or or to be honest, I think sometimes we we throw these these phrases around and, and inadvertently we communicate something we do not intend to communicate. Our speech as a whole, everything we say must be under the lordship of Jesus Christ, communicating truth because we are people of the truth. Think about gossip. Think about slander. I think it fits into this category. Do you need to overpromise or swear to someone because you're no longer taken seriously because of your track record? Jesus says that anything less than yes and no, meaning yes and no, is from the evil one. Wow. Think about the implications of that. If you cannot be trusted with your yes or no, you are displaying, Jesus says, the act of Satan. That's heavy. The way of Satan is exaggeration. The way of Satan is falsifying information. The way of Satan is lying and twisting truth. The way of God is accuracy, truth, and honesty. Again, Jesus is not against oaths in particular, He's against the necessity of oaths in order to get someone to trust you. What motivates us to speak the truth, brothers and sisters? Christ. The love, Of Christ, the love for Christ. When we speak the truth, we reflect the heart of Jesus Christ. You see, this is not another way to obey or another law to obey because we fall under its obligation in order to be justified by it. No, it's a privilege. It's an honor to be loved by the Lord of truth. And therefore, looking to him, we speak the truth to our neighbor. Church, our words and our actions, they go hand in hand. Perhaps no scripture makes this more clear than Proverbs chapter 6, where the Bible weaves together in this tapestry the evils we speak and the evils we do. Listen to God's word in Proverbs 6. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devices wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies. And one who spreads strife among brethren. You know, words, our words and our actions, they're often inseparable. And one leads to the next. They're... They're displayed in the same context. And so having dealt with the importance of speaking truth, Jesus now moves to address the importance of our actions. And again, he makes this call. Number two, as kingdom citizens, serve sacrificially one another. Not only speak truthfully to one another, but as you do that, not relying on oaths, understanding that everything we speak reflects our Lord and is under the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. But also we ought to serve sacrificially. And this next issue here that he addresses is the issue of retaliation. It's the issue of vengeance. It's the issue of revenge. It's the law of tit for tat, a law that is traceable in the legal codes going 2000 years, even before The coming of Jesus Christ. Societies and and social structure could not exist without the law of retaliation, which says, as Jesus quotes here, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in verse 38. This teaching is obviously biblical. It's clearly expressed in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 24. Now, on the surface, I don't know if if maybe the first time you read it, it's like, man, this feels cruel, right? This feels cruel, an eye for an eye and and a tooth for a tooth. But when you really consider the implication, this is a very merciful command. This legislature was restrictive in nature, not permissive. What am I saying? What am I saying? If someone knocked out your tooth, the justice system limited you to his tooth only. Tooth for tooth. So if someone injured you, if someone committed a crime against you, then the punishment fits the crime. You can't go for his mouth. The entire thing. You can't go for his head. It was limited to one thing. Why? because we're sinful beings and we usually double up on revenge. We don't obey tooth for tooth, an eye for an eye. We say, you took my tooth? I'm going to take your head. And in order to restrict sin, in order to restrict evil, God gives them the command, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, A donkey for a donkey, Leviticus. Everything must be equal. Jesus does not oppose here its legal application. Justice, in fact, must be carried out. However, he does attack the scribal understanding of this Old Testament principle in the area uh, of personal revenge and vengeance. Personal revenge and vengeance. D.A. Carson says... The law was thus being dragged into the personal arena where it could scarcely foster even rough justice, but only bitterness, vengeance, hatred, and malice. And Jesus' response here is is very radical. Most, if not all, his hearers would have been shocked by these statements. First, he lays down basically a a simple and a basic principle. And he says this in verse 39, but I say to you, here's the way, here's the way this command should be interpreted. Here's what I want you, if if you follow me, here's, here's what I tell you. Do not resist an evil person. Do not resist an evil person. You know what he does here? He's addressing our rights, our rights as Christians. You know, we often talk about today the human rights or our inalienable rights. I have the right to do this, or I have the right to do that. It's been given to me, to me by my creator. I can do this. But, but we must ask question. And I think it's appropriate to ask this question here in this setting. What kind of right do the kingdom citizens have? Do Christians have any personal rights when they are wronged and when they are assaulted. I think when you read these words of Jesus and, and you couple them with a lot of what the um epistle writers have to say, like Paul, the short answer is in the case of personal assault or injury, there are no personal rights for Christians. This is wild. This is radical. When someone does something evil, Jesus says, don't relate to them as your enemy. In fact, he will expand on that in beginning with the next section in verse 43. Don't resist. Don't scheme revenge. It is not an option for you as a Christian, it is not an option for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 12. Don't pay evil for evil. When someone does you harm, don't pay them evil. If possible, he says, be at peace with all men. And more than that, he says, feed your enemy and give them a drink. The mindset, I don't get mad, I get even, is foreign to Jesus Christ and should be foreign to all of us. If we're called to follow in his footsteps, then we are called to do what what Jesus did and he gives us four examples here. He says this. If someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. Slaps you. You know, Pastor J. Vernon McGee tells a story of an Irish man who, who was punched in the face by someone. Upon remembering the words of Jesus, he turned the other cheek. And the man punched him again. After that, he, the Irish man took the man... Just beat the snot out of him. When asked why he did it, the Irishman replied, well, Jesus said to turn the other cheek, but he didn't say what to do after that. (laughs) What does he mean? Certainly we don't have any follow-up. Is there a third strike? What do we do? What is the principle that Jesus is after? You know, slaps you? It's a reference to someone kind of does the backhanded slap. And it was meant to embarrass. It was meant to insult you. It was personal. It wasn't even a punch, but it was a slap. Matthew uses the same word in, in, in Matthew 26 when Jesus was blindfolded and he was slapped by the Roman soldier. It was insulting. It was painful. Chuck Quarles, he writes, Jesus himself was the perfect model of this gracious response to the abusers of others. He was mocked, spat upon, beaten with sticks, slapped, scourged, and nailed to the cross. Nevertheless, he endured this all without retaliation and even with forgiveness on his lips. Never is the disciple more like the Savior than when he responds to abuses graciously and without retaliation when someone insults you, don't be so quick, Jesus teaches, to get out your revenge, to pay him back, to get at him. Again, this is in the context of personal wrong against us. It is true that we should all stand up for justice, for righteousness. Protecting ourselves and protecting our families from harm is is not in view here. Violent crimes are not to be excused either the guiding principle is one of neighbor love for all and the putting away of this heart of anger of malice of revenge of avenging a wrong against me personally jesus brings another example and he says when someone demands of you one thing give him more when someone asks you of one thing give him more This is how the citizens of the kingdom should respond, not only to insults, but legal attacks. This was too familiar in the Jewish culture. He says this, and if someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. What does that mean? You know, ancient people who lived in the East, they generally had two garments. They had an inner garment and they had one large kind of heavy coat, a cloak, they wore a tunic and then they 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 wore this coat. And that coat was so important to them, the, the outward coat, that if a person who was really poor and he had borrowed money against this coat, like I don't have anything, but I'm willing to sell this coat to you, okay, and you're going to take my coat, you're going to give me some money. You, by law, were required to return this coat to me at night because I used it as a cloak and a covering and a bed to sleep on. And then in the morning when I'm done sleeping, you would then come back and take my coat again. It was that important to them. And Jesus says he's calling his followers to go beyond what the law requires. Give it up to them. Don't go after them. If someone wants your shirt, go beyond what the law requires. Respond to your accusers and your adversary with grace. In in our day, we might say something like, If he takes your coat, offer him a shirt off your back too. Go beyond. Give him more. Show him grace. Now, this is very anti-cultural. This is anti-Tim. That's not how I act. That's not my normal disposition, not only to, like, enemies and unbelievers. I'm talking about folks here in this room. That's not how we relate to one another. I'm going to give you what I have. Naturally, we say, who are you to, to even ask of this? This is mine. I own it. Jesus says, your attitude should be different. And so we understand that we are more like Pharisees here in this section than we are more like Jesus. That is why the standard is so high. But he doesn't, he doesn't end there. He says, always be willing to go the extra mile. That's why I titled this sermon, quite frankly, Go the Extra Mile, be willing to go the extra mile has long been a common saying in our culture, right? And it is rooted here in verse 41. You know, since Israel was occupied under Roman rule, the people of Israel could be required to assist Roman military and carry a load of one mile. So what that looked like is, we have an example of this, Simon of Cyrene. Remember when Jesus was carrying his cross and Jesus just flat out was weak and couldn't carry the cross Roman soldiers grabbed just the man out of the crowd. And he says, you go and carry that cross by law. He had to carry the cross one mile. They were required to do it. Jesus says, listen, brother, sister, when you reach the limits of what the Roman law requires, don't stop and drop the burden at the oppressor's feet. Keep going. Carry the load another mile. Do it voluntarily, not for this king, not for Caesar, but for that king, for Jesus. Go the extra mile. And then finally, in verse 42, he says, give to him who asks and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Someone crosses your path with a desperate need. He's not slothful. He's not irresponsible, but he has a legitimate need and you have the means to assist him. Jesus says, jump in, jump in, help, be generous in your giving. Don't find excuses not to help, not to assist. Cheerfully give New Testament teaching. Spurgeon once said, be generous, be generous. A miser is no follower of Jesus, a hoarder. Someone who hoards is just, it's mine. It's my. The Lord keeps blessing you, but you're just, you put it in your own wallet. And, no, I can't give. I, uh, I'm not like that. The disposition of a, of a Christian, the disposition of someone who belongs to the kingdom of God, the disposition of someone who has tasted the kindness of the Lord and his mercy and grace is to be the channel through whom God's grace flows to others, including tangible giving. Don't be asking, what's in it for me? Explain What will be my return? How much will I I get on this investment? Give freely. Don't expect anything in return. Obviously, I think it's assumed that, that we are to be wise with our resources. Jesus does not call us to foolishly squander his resources because we are called to be faithful stewards. He's calling us to follow him and to serve others sacrificially. What is our motive in all of this? What should be our motive? Why should we not retaliate exact revenge from those who insult us, but instead look to, to go the extra mile, to suffer loss? Christ, Christ. Again, I will remind you that this is the high calling. Jesus is addressing our inability to fulfill God's lie in its entirety, exposing our real problem, our real issue, our desperate need for Jesus Christ. But now, brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus Christ, those who believe in him, we have surrendered our life to him, to his cause. We are loved by Christ, and should we not follow in his footsteps? Our motivation is the love of Christ. Why don't we retaliate? Because God didn't. Because Christ didn't. While we were yet sinners, we read in Romans 5, Christ died for us in order to reconcile us to himself as enemies. We have been blessed. We have been showered with a blessing from on high. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty... Might become rich. Church, making much of Jesus and reflecting Jesus is the goal of our life. Specifically today, we're talking about in the manner that we speak, in the manner that we act. As kingdom citizens, we trust in Jesus. We must dwell on the gospel of Christ. His gospel is the word of truth. And as such, we must be known by truth, right? If we have been deposited this truth, we must be known by truth. Oh, church, let us be a community that that values truth. And truth not only in public settings right now, the proclamation of truth, but, but in private conversations so that we would fear all forms of lies. And second, when we dwell on the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are quickly reminded of the kindness, of the mercy of God towards us sinners. Oh, think about this Jesus had all the reasons to retaliate against you, all the reasons. When he was crying out there in Gethsemane, he says, "Father, this this is a tall order. Let this pass. Cup, let this cup pass from me." All the reasons not to do this. He was dying for his enemies. Yet, what did he do? I will, because you will, because you loved the world, and that is why I'm going after them. God. Could retaliate, but he gave up his son. What should we do? I want to encourage you to dwell on these words, dwell on the gospel, and think about what it is that you need to change, what it is that we need to confess now before the Lord. Kingdom citizens, they speak truthfully and they serve sacrificially. Father, I thank you and I praise you for this word, and I ask you that it would dwell in our lives, that we would truly prime ourselves with the gospel just remember that we were once enemies that we were um, Lord just like the Pharisees we were creating our own system of self-righteousness and and to, to create loopholes and, and, and shortcuts but you expose all of that we're no longer what we used to be we're part of your kingdom Lord help us to to cling to Jesus Christ and when we do lie when we do fail when we don't serve people sacrificially and Lord, we do that often. Forgive us. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. Compel us to further holiness. For your glory, we ask. Amen.